in 2008, the central banks bailed out Wall Street. In 2018, if not sooner, who's going to bail out the central banks? My point is each bailout gets bigger than the one before, more dangerous, requiring a larger bailout. This is City AM Unregulated. I'm Emma Hazlitt. On this week's show, a global conspiracy. This sounds a little bit of a stretch, but... It's a it, doomsday scenario, surely. Well, it, it is, but it has happened in Cyprus. It happened in Greece, which is a major country, and it's happening today in India. As author Jim Rickard sets out his predictions for an uncertain future. This crisis is bigger than Trump. I think it may very well happen in, in the Trump administration, but it, it won't be his fault, but it will be his misfortune. Welcome to City AM Unregulated. This week, we're joined by Jim Rickards, who believes we're on a road to ruin. So, Jim, there's a financial crisis coming. Tell me more. There are very rigorous scientific models that would indicate that. Uh, they're not the models that are used by central bankers and uh, risk managers and uh, uh, people in Wall Street or in the city, but they're, they're very good models that come from other branches of science, from physics, uh, from behavioral economics, etc., uh, and you actually can see this coming as we could have seen the 2008 crisis coming or indeed uh, 1998. Um, so in my book, The Road to Ruin, I go through three crises. Uh, I look at 98, I look at 2008, and then I hypothesize 2018. And that's just really a device to keep up the 10-year tempo. But the point I make to readers is it could be 2018, but it could be tomorrow. So the time to prepare is now. It's really scary stuff, but the the scariest part of it is that you kind of, in a roundabout way, um, confirm what Michael Gove, who is the British Brexiteer, said that economics is in crisis. I mean, is that is that what you would argue? I would definitely argue that. In fact, I actually cover that in the introduction to my book before we get into the meat of the science and the history and the different uh, techniques I use. The introduction is sort of an overview of the main uh, schools of economics of the past really 150 years. I uh, am of the heterodox school. Heterodox is sort of a catch-all for anyone who doesn't agree with one of the <laughs> established schools. And actually, even earlier at the classical school of economics, David Ricardo and uh, John Stuart Mill and others of the 19th century. Um, heterodox is this catch-all for people who don't agree. But I, I sort of adhere to the historical school uh, and some of those practitioners are uh, Walter Badgett, um, Joseph Schumpeter, um, and even Karl Marx, where they think uh, that there are big, long processes in history that play out over very long periods of time that actually transcend the politicians, the day-to-day -day efforts, etc. Uh, I look at it that way, but I use complexity theory as a more rigorous scientific basis so for, for those processes. what is complexity theory? Well, sure, it? complexity theory is... Um, Can you explain it simply? Of course. Uh, <laughs> It's a relatively new branch of science, but uh, it's as old as the Big Bang. So systems have various qualities. They, there's interaction among the components of the system. There's adaptive behavior. And this can be humans. It can be uh, human behavior. It can be uh, a moss that, you know, turns a certain color based on certain inputs, et cetera. So you have interaction. You have diverse agents. You have um, communication among them. You have adaptive behavior. So systems morph. And a couple of basic rules. Number one, uh, and this is just saying, you know, the, the sum is, uh, the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Complex systems have what are called emergent properties. If you have perfect information about everything in the system, 
you would not see the emergent property. That's something that comes out of nowhere. This corresponds scientifically to what financiers call the black swan event. Uh, I've never liked the term black swan because it's sort of content free. It's a colorful metaphor and, yeah. you know, credit to uh, uh, Nassim Taleb for coming up with it. And his very and successful book, the, and white swans the and black swan. The exactly. Swans. Right. Uh, th- th- that's right. But to me, that doesn't have any scientific rigor. And uh, this idea of the emergent property, something that seems to come out of nowhere. That really explains these financial crises that, you know, no one was really looking uh, for um, a crisis in 1997-98. So in June 1997, Thailand devalued the baht, their local currency. Uh, this started a, a flight from emerging markets, uh, started a currency crisis, spread to Malaysia, Indonesia, South Korea, then it spread to Russia, then it ended up actually in my lap at uh, the hedge fund in Greenwich, long-term capital management. I was their chief lawyer. Uh, our firm uh, experienced a crisis. We lost $4 billion in two months or less than two months in this financial panic, I ended up actually having to negotiate that bailout. Um, It was our firm against all of Wall Street, 14 major banks with the Fed and the Treasury looking over our shoulders. Uh, But who could have foreseen that from uh, the devaluation of the Thai bot? So this is how, from very small starts, and I think popularly known as the butterfly effect, you know, butterfly flaps its wings in, in the Amazon and causes a hurricane in Florida. It's the same thing, but there's it's not just it's not just colorful metaphors. There's there's good science and mathematics behind it. So in the book, you start off by talking about Felix Sommery, who essentially correctly predicted World Wars One and Two, and also the Great Depression. I mean, would it be useful to have him around now? It would indeed. Uh, I actually say uh, Felix uh, Sommery was um, uh, born in the what was then the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Went to the uni- in late nineteenth century. Went to the University of Vienna. Got his PhD. Was colleagues or students of the great minds of the Austrian school: Karl Menger, uh, uh, Eugen von von Berbeck, and uh, Joseph Schumpeter, and and uh, and Max Weber, and others. So he was right in the thick of that. But kind of left that behind. Went to Switzerland. Became a wealth manager. Uh, but he was known as the Raven of Zurich. Mm. Um, the Raven in mythology and in the Bible is a symbol of prophecy. Uh, it's a sign of the, the the future, sometimes a good omen or a bad omen. So he could foresee stuff. He could foresee very momentous things. You mentioned World War One and World War Two, the Great Depression. Also, there was a hyperinflation in uh, 1919 before the Great Depression um, and, and other events. He used um, intuition, history, and a little bit of the historical process I referred to. But what he was really using, he didn't use this phrase, but he was using something called Bayes' theorem. Um, a little wonky sounding, but it's a branch of applied mathematics, uh, really in statistics. It's a way to predict things uh, with very scarce data. Now, most people say, give me lots of data. That's called the frequentist method. It's what most people on Wall Street do. It's what high-frequency traders do. Lots and lots and lots of data. Crunch it, look for correlations, construct covariance matrices. These are just relationships between a lot of variables. And then based on that, do regressions. That's looking backwards to see relationships and then make a forecast about the future. Well, that's fine if you have lots of data. What if you don't? What if you have one data point, maybe two, maybe none? So you're doing the economics equivalent of palm reading. Well, uh, palm reading is uh, is sort of pseudoscience. This is real science with a with a good pedigree. I learned this uh, doing work for the CIA, doing counterterrorism work after 9-11. We had to um, come up with the next spectacular terrorist attack, or at least look for it. Uh, my involvement was from the financial side. I wasn't, you know, jumping out of airplanes with a knife between my teeth, but I was asked to. And that's look funny because at... I see you doing that. <laughs> the um, what what happened there? There was insider trading ahead of nine eleven. That's really beyond dispute. Uh, 
massive, massive buying of put options uh, in United Airlines and American Airlines on the last two trading days before the attack. Clearly, insider trading, a bet that those airlines were going to go down literally and financially. Um, so what we said as CIA was, okay, if there were another attack, uh, would there be insider trading again? Could you detect it? Could you get a warrant, break down the door, stop the attack and save lives? That was our mission. So I was involved in kind of coming up with the financial parameters about that. But my point as it relates to Bayes' theorem is we only had one attack. We didn't have 50 or 100 that we could study. Uh, so how do you um, model that so you can see the next attack coming? Well, you can use that in financial markets as well. And has that been, I mean, has there been another attack prevented in that way? In uh, one of the famous episodes, August 2006, uh, MI5 and New Scotland Yard took down the liquids plot to blow up 10 airlines in midair, killed perhaps as many as 3,000 people, uh, mostly Americans, because they were targeting, you know, Americans returning to uh, to New York. That was done uh, through cooperation of uh, ISI, Pakistani intelligence, CIA, MI6, MI5, and New Scotland Yard. They all worked together. But using the system that my colleagues and I invented at the CIA, we actually got a red alert on that two days before that was taken down. Again, this was in early August 2006. So that showed that our, our system worked extremely well. Um, but what we realized was that the system could be used for other things. It could be used to predict market movements. It could be used to uh, to look at geopolitical events. It wasn't. Con we we invented it as a counterterrorism system, but the use wasn't confined to counterterrorism. So that was all application of Bayes' theorem. All I've done since then is take Bayes' theorem over into capital markets on a day-to-day -day basis and use it to perceive various events, such as uh, I was in the. Uh, London Eye in a capsule with a film crew on June 20th uh, saying that Brexit would vote to uh, leave the UK, telling uh, uh, people to uh, short sterling and buy gold. And of course, those trades worked out very well. So do you see yourself as the next Felix Summary? And what's your big prediction, if so? Well, uh, I'll leave that to others. But uh, I do say in the book, kind of rhetorically, uh, who is, uh, you know, who's the new raven? Who, who, can, who is using these techniques? Uh, one of the reasons I'm writing the books and, you know, doing interviews and publicity is to kind of get these ideas out there, help them to become more mainstream. It's no, These are not secrets. I mean, Bayes' theorem has been around for 200 years. Uh, uh, behavioral psychology has been uh, had powerful results since the 1970s. Complexity theory was worked out in the early 1960s. Uh, I didn't invent any of these. What, what I'm doing, along with others, is taking them and importing them into capital markets, which are complex systems, non-parel, and getting very good results. The models in use today are all obsolete and badly flawed. They're equilibrium models, they uh, so-called value at risk, which the, the city bankers and Wall Streeters use. Uh, these models have assumptions underneath them. The assumptions are that markets are efficient, uh, that risk is normally distributed. That's the famous bell curve uh, degree distribution, um, that you know all information is incorporated continuously, that prices move continuously. You can always get in and get out at maybe a worse price, but there's always a price there. Turns out that none of those assumptions are correct. Uh, markets are not efficient. Prices occasionally gap, giving you no opportunity to get out at any intermediate price, um, et cetera. And there's all kinds of um, irrational behavior. There, it's not based on rational expectations. It's based on fear and greed and herding instincts and uh, what's called anchoring and you know, just these various concepts from behavioral psychology. So when you go through it all, you say, okay, gee, the foundations of modern finance have completely crumbled. All the science on which it was based uh, does not hold up. 
I think a lot of people have some understanding of that, but the question is, okay, we throw it out. What is there to replace it? So what I'm doing is not only criticizing the existing models, but helping to build new models that do work. There are two things in that really interested me about the book. One of them is that you are not a big fan of central bankers, as far as I could tell. The other thing is that cash is very important to you. Can you explain how those two things relate? I actually, my favorite central banker is Mario Draghi. He's the only central banker who understands central banking. What he understands is that central bankers are impotent and they should uh, say little and do less. And Draghi is a master of that. He says very little and then does nothing after he says it. Uh, versus Carney and Janet Yellen and Kuroda and other central bankers around the world who are uh, you know, busy. Uh, uh, they try to be transparent in the course of doing so. They, all they do is confuse people with their contradictions and uh, their erroneous statements. But my, my beef is with central bankers who use obsolete and flawed models who don't know what they're doing. And interestingly, I've had a lot of private conversations with members of the Board of Governors, the Federal Reserve System, Regional Reserve Bank presidents, other central bankers around the world. And that's the equivalent of the Monetary Policy Committee over here. Correct. Um, and uh, and I actually spoke to one of the, uh, two members of the Monetary Policy Committee, uh, one former, one uh, one present, um, on various occasions. And privately, they'll tell you they don't know what they're doing. I mean, they say that they, we don't know what we're doing. We try things. If they seem to work, we do a little more. If they don't work, we back away. They won't say that publicly, but I've had many conversations like that. And they're actually right. They don't know what they're doing. But one of the things they're trying to do is asset freezes. Can you tell us about your theory? Well, this is not something they've done yet, but they are preparing to do this in the next financial crisis. Now, we talked earlier, I said there were three crises, 1998, 2008, and 2018. So in 1998, Wall Street bailed out a hedge fund. In 2008, the central banks bailed out Wall Street. In 2018, if not sooner, who's going to bail out the central banks? My point is each bailout gets bigger than the one before, more dangerous, requiring a larger bailout. And your implication there is that it's the consumer who will do the bailing out. Well, the investors, bondholders, uh, depositors, uh, everyday citizens will end, up, it will end up cost savers. It will end up costing them money. But the question is, what is the process? Now, first of all, all financial panics at the end of the day are the same. Everyone wants their money back. People say, oh, I've got money in the stock market or money in the bond market and money in property. I say, no, you don't. You may have stocks, bonds, and real estate, but that's not money. If you want money, you have to sell those things, get your money back. And of course, the market's crashing and the price is going lower. So a panic is basically money. correct. Everyone wants their money back. So in 98, they printed the money and gave it to them. In 2008, they printed the money and gave it to them. The next time, they're not going to be able to print the money. The central banks have not normalized their balance sheet. They bloated their balance sheets to deal with the last crisis. They have not kind of lost the weight, if you will, got back to normal. And that's they're, by keeping interest rates low? The last time, what did they do? They lowered interest rates and expanded their balance sheets. Well, if they had somehow normalized in the meantime, reduced the balance sheet and raised interest rates, I'd be the first one to congratulate them. I would say, nice job. You saved the world. You got back to normal. Now you're ready for the next crisis. But that didn't happen. They're not ready for the next crisis because the balance sheets are still extended. The Federal Reserve is at $4.1 trillion. Other central banks around the world are worse. Interest rates are still close to zero, negative in some cases. So they're, they have no capacity to deal with the next crisis. So where will the liquidity come from when everyone wants their money back? The answer is there's only one clean balance sheet left in the world. That's the International Monetary Fund. They can print money, world money. They will, and they'll hand it out. But that process will take at least three months, perhaps longer. Last time in 2009, it took 11 months. to. They, they're, they're what I call world money. They have a funny name for it. They call it 
the Special Drawing Right, or SDR. Uh, this they is, do love an acronym, don't they? Well, they do, and they also love names that make no sense. I mean, yeah. why, is the US, why is the Central Bank of the United States called the Federal Reserve? Well, the answer is Americans hate central banks and always have, so they give it a funny name. Uh, same thing with the Special Drawing Rights. If they called it World Money, people might find that a little spooky, but anyway, they'll, they'll print the World Money and hand it out. That'll take perhaps six months, uh, maybe a little bit longer. What will they do in the meantime? The difference is they will lock down the system. I actually call this uh, ICE-9 in honor of Kurt Vonnegut, yeah. who invented Ice Nine and his Cat's uh, novel, Cat's Cradle, exactly, a darkly comedic novel, the uh, Doomsday Machine, uh, written not long after the Cuban Missile Crisis, so uh, it was kind of front of mind at the time. Ice Nine in the novel talks about freezing all the all the water on the planet, every river, stream, ocean, et cetera, and then the planet freezes and life on Earth dies. Ice Nine in the financial system is about freezing or locking down access to your money. So I was going to say, because is this capital controls by another name? Well, it is, except uh, capital controls are usually associated with cross-border payments, uh, you know, one country investing, foreign direct investment in another country, et cetera. This is, these are capital controls at the retail level. That's that's a good way to think about it. So just to give you a concrete example, uh, in the U.S. we have what are called money market funds. Great misnomer, by the way, because it's not money. It's a unit of a, a fund of, of sorts. And I dare say these are there's similar structures around the world. Um, it used to be the case that if you wanted your money, you called your broker, they sold your units, and the money was in your bank the next day, and you could write a check for uh, your children's tuition or your parents' health care, as the case may be. Uh, that has changed very recently in the U.S. Now, for the first time, money market funds may suspend redemptions, meaning simply they don't have to give you your money back. That's always been true of hedge funds and private equity funds, but now it's true of the most liquid uh, type of funds we have. Um, and people will be shocked to find that out. Now, I'm sure they got a little flyer in their monthly statement, a little brochure that they threw in the trash and didn't read because of the fine print, but that's now the law. The problem is you cannot lock down or freeze part of the financial system because the liquidity pressure just moves somewhere else. So if you say money market funds are frozen, people will take their money out of the banks. That means you have to close the banks. Then they'll sell stocks. That means you have to close the stock market and so on. And this sounds a little bit of a stretch. but It's a it, doomsday scenario, surely. Well, it, it is, but it has happened in Cyprus. It happened in Greece, which is a major country, and it's happening today in India. You know, I finished uh, writing my book, Emma, in September, and then it takes a month or two to get printed up and boxed and shipped out to the bookstores and all that. I knew that these freezes were coming. I didn't know they'd be coming the week the book came out in India. So how did Donald Trump and Brexit fit in with this? And are they the same thing? They are uh, similar in the sense that they are they're, um, manifestations of a nationalist perspective. Uh, Trump is not a conservative by any means. Uh, one thing, I, I travel around the world quite a bit, and I find that uh, people outside the United States, uh, they have this horrific view of Trump as if he's a monster. And uh, the, the problem is that, um, in the U.S., we get uh, what I would regard as propaganda or false news from CNN, NBC, ABC, Washington Post, New York Times. But we have other voices such as Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram. They may not be familiar to, uh, to non-U.S. listeners, but they will give you the other side. But when you go to the U.K. or Australia, where I've been recently, or Ireland a few weeks ago, you're only getting the CNN version. You're only getting CNN and CNBC you're getting one side. You're not hearing the other voices. I would hate to form this, you know, my image of Trump based on what CNN had to say. the The best way to understand it these are these are nationalists. They're not globalists. I don't know when nationalist became a derogatory term, but it seems to be one today. To me, as an American, you know, I love my country. I want America to do well. I'm sure, um, you know, subjects UK subjects feel the same way about the UK. And 
uh, France and everywhere else around the world. I see no harm in that. There's no reason why competition can't be friendly and there's no reason why there can't be a great degree of cooperation. But it doesn't mean you throw away your national uh, goals and national values for the sake of a global leap. So you're saying, you know, Trump's ostensible rejection of globalism is not necessarily going to bring about this crisis that you're talking about? No, that's actually, it's a very good question. Emma. This crisis, and it goes back to the historical method I talked about earlier, this crisis is bigger than Trump. I think it may very well happen. Don't tell him that. In the, <laughs> in, in the Trump administration, but it, it won't be his fault, but it will be his misfortune. So is there anything that anyone can do to stop this from happening? There actually is. I don't uh, like writing the books of the type I write without offering some positive solutions. There are some very definite things you can do. Uh, and by the way, again, just to extend the metaphor, what does a ski patrol do in Switzerland or Colorado in the morning when they say avalanche danger? They set off dynamite and they descale the system. They, they blow up small avalanches before they become big ones. We can do the same thing in finance. So first of all, let's go back to the pre-Big Bang regulation, pre-1985 in the UK. Let's bring back Glass-Steagall in the US. Let's... Huge. That would be huge. Well, actually, you know, the original Glass-Steagall legis uh, legislation in 1933 was about five pages. Now, Dodd-Frank was over a thousand pages, but Glass-Steagall was five pages. It said, you may take deposits and make loans, call yourself a commercial bank, or you may underwrite and sell securities, call yourself an investment bank, but you may okay. not do both because there are inherent conflicts. What happened in the 1920s, banks, uh, banks originated uh, uh, garbage loans, securitized them, sold them to their customers. And it all came crashing down in 1929. So the Congress had hearings. They said, well, that's obviously a conflict. You can't do it. And that was the law for 66 years in the U.S. And it was also the law in the U.K. prior mm -hmm. to 1985. So what happened in 1999 when we repealed Glass-Steagall in the U.S.? Banks organized garbage loans, securitized them, sold them to their customers. Was it any surprise the system collapsed within a matter of years? So let's, let's uh, go back to Glass-Steagall. Let's break up the banks. When I started in banking, J.P. Morgan was five giant banks. J.P. Morgan, Chase Manhattan, Chemical Manufacturers, etc. There were a bunch of banks in there. Break them up again. It's just like watertight compartments on a vessel. You can punch a hole in the hull but the vessel won't sink. One compartment will fill up, but the vessel won't sink. If one bank fails, too bad for them, but it won't take down the system. I don't want to make any Titanic jokes there. <laughs> um, so final question, what can I do to prevent this crisis from affecting me? The point is, I just talked about what the system can do. The odds of that are zero. I don't see any of that happening because there's no political will. The bankers own um, the legislative process. They own the parliament. They own the Congress. So that... I can give the recommendation, but that won't happen. So so if we can't save the system... Buy gold? What can we do to save ourselves? Absolutely buy gold. I recommend 10% of your investable assets in gold, not more. I think 10% is fine. Uh, physical gold, don't buy paper gold. Those are you know ETFs and futures and un unallocated forward contracts from the London Bullion Market Association banks. Don't buy any of those. Buy physical gold. Put it in a safe place. Don't put it in a bank. There's a high conditional correlation between the time you most want your gold and the time the banks will be closed. So that's not a good idea. Put it in non-bank storage. Under the mattress. Not uh, comfortable. Well, but. <laughs> well, if it's under the mattress, just don't tell anyone. But there are <laughs> there are a non, you know, reliable non-bank vaults. And the other thing is cash. Cash has a, a place. Now, it's interesting. People are surprised to hear me say that. They say, hey, Jim, you you wrote a book called The Death of Money, uh, the road to another book, The Road to Ruin. Why would you have cash? The answer is I might not have it for long, but I like it for now. Uh, because it, first of all, reduces the volatility of the rest of your portfolio. If you have gold, and gold mm -hmm. is volatile, et cetera, reduces that so you can sleep better at night. But more to the point, it gives you 
large embedded optionality. You're the person who can pivot in a certain direction, whereas others are stuck in their investment. So have cash for now. I recommend about 30%. I have a fair amount of cash. Uh, the time may come when I want to get out of the cash, but at least I'll know which way to go. Well, Jim Ricards, on that quite frightening note, thank you very much for coming down. Thanks, Emma. With thanks to Jim Rickards, this has been City AM Unregulated. You can get the podcast on cityam.com, subscribe with iTunes, Audio Boom, or use RSS with your favourite podcast player. City AM Unregulated is an Audio Boom production.